Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 13. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Lord of the Lord, thanks be to God. Before we jump in, let me remind you, if you're tuning in with us new, um, there are some important ways for you to connect with us, right? Um, those of you who have been around for a while may be getting really tired of this, but uh, it is important so that new people can stay connected. Make sure that if you haven't yet, you download the Church Center app on your phone so that you can stay connected to um, important events. Um, you can sign up for attending um, one of our gatherings, or you can give through the app. Uh, and also, if you want to stay connected to the fastest and most reliable way we communicate, uh, and we don't overuse it, we use it for important stuff, make sure you text uh, yeah, buddy, to 618-266-3210, and that will get you on our text list, and uh, you will be opted in uh, for important information. Today, we lit the third Advent candle, uh, the candle of joy, right? Um, how many of you have seen the movie Inside Out? Does that sound familiar to you? 2015. That was five years ago. In some ways, it feels like it was 500. Um, and uh, in other ways, it's like, holy cow, that only that was five years ago. Uh, Inside Out was um, one of those kids' movies that turned out to be uh, not for kids. I mean, it really was. The kids loved it because of the fun characters and the rest of that. But uh, it was it was a kids' movie that that punched a lot of us in the gut. Um, it was all about a little girl who relocated with her family um, when when dad got relocated from the Midwest to San Francisco and and uh, Riley, the little girl, uh, ends up going through all of the struggles of relocation and all of the emotions that come with it. And, and so in this movie, we not only move along with Riley, we move along with the the emotions that inhabit her head, right? And, and they had four of them. Anger and disgust were a lot of fun. They were there to blow their top or, or get disgusted at things. But of course, the real drama uh, of this movie um, happened between joy and sadness. Um, joy and sadness were the stars of the emotional stage. Um, joy wanted to dominate Riley's life. She wanted everything in Riley's life to be, to be yellow, bright yellow, full of joy, and so she did everything she could to basically limit sadness, right? 
Um, there are these little globes in, in her brain, and in each of those globes represents an experience or a memory, and, 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 and Joy wants to touch them all and make sure they're all yellow, bright yellow, as they go into the storage cabinets of long-term storage and, and memory. And, and of course, sadness just kind of happens to walk by and occasionally touch one, or maybe just drag her hand across a whole series of a hundred of them, and they all turn blue. They're all now sad, and, and, and Joy freaks out, right, because sadness is the enemy of joy, right? Now, it doesn't come out that clearly in, in, in this children's movie, but, but the implication here that, that joy is, is communicating is that, is that sadness is her enemy, right? She wants everything to be joyful, and sadness keeps coming around and, and ruining it, right? Um, and... Uh, and, and, and she's just frantically trying to control the sadness. One of my favorite parts in the movie is when she draws a little circle around sadness and says, that's, that's your domain right there. That's where you get to be. Just stay right there. Right? Don't step outside of that little circle. Um, you stay right there and everybody will be happy. Here's the thing. If this wasn't a Pixar movie, sadness, uh, I think Joy would be trying to kill sadness. Like, I literally think Joy would be trying to kill sadness. That, that, that Joy was doing everything her, everything she could to make sadness disappear and cease to exist, right? Because in her perception, sadness was the enemy of joy. Um, now, we found this funny because obviously it's Pixar, and Pixar is brilliant at taking complex topics and putting them into kids' stories and making them funny and engaging. Um, but here's the thing, it wasn't funny because of all the Pixar movies, I think this one was one of the more insightful as far as actually cutting open the human heart. Um, I think most of us really do approach life like this. We think sadness is the enemy of joy. Like, like we think sadness is the enemy. And, and joy is, is what we're pursuing. And, and the only way to get the joy is to kill the sadness. Right? The, the goal of joy is to drive out the sadness because sadness is the enemy of our joy. And so we pursue joy in order to protect ourselves from sadness. We pursue joy to, to insulate ourselves from sadness, to distract ourselves from sadness. Um, from, from, and sorrow and all of her ugly cousins, right? I'm not just talking about sorrow, but, but all the negative feelings that come with sorrow, right? The, the loneliness and the isolation and the feeling of vulnerability and, and the loss and hurt and all, all the ugly cousins that come along with it, right? We, we just want to take that entire clan and exile them on some forgotten island because if we can just get rid of that, then we'll have joy, right? And so we start chasing what we think will give us joy, right? We start chasing what we think will make us happy, and silence the sorrow, right? This is an American pastime, right? It's actually written into our founding documents. It is an American right to have the pursuit of happiness, right? And, and, and we take that very, very seriously. We, we spend all of our time pursuing happiness. Now, we spend very little time actually having any happiness, but we devote a lot of our time to pursuing it, right? Because as soon as we get the thing that was supposed to make us happy, we already know it won't, and so we just keep pursuing. It is this continual treadmill of, of pursuing this next thing that is going to actually give us joy and deliver us from our sorrow, and that's why it's a fool's pursuit. You can't get joy by pursuing joy. 
You can't get happiness by pursuing happiness. The biblical pursuit of joy is fundamentally different than the American pursuit of happiness. Because joy doesn't result, doesn't come to us when we defeat sorrow. Right? When, when we can draw a circle around the things that hurt us, that make us lonely, isolated, fearful, that bring us sorrow. We can draw that permanent little circle and just keep it away, right? If we can just have enough experiences, if we can just have enough promotions, if we can just have enough money, if we can just have enough success, if we can just have enough people who love us, if we can just have enough, right? It's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. It didn't work in the movie, and it doesn't work in real life. Um, listen, y'all, joy isn't a destination. Joy is not an end in itself. Joy is not something, honestly, to be pursued, right? Because you can't get joy by pursuing joy. True joy is a byproduct, not a destination. True joy comes from pursuing what's worth pursuing. It is a byproduct, not an end in and of itself, right? It is the byproduct of a dynamic process as we grow in, in, in our faith in the gospel and in our advent hope of the fulfillment of the gospel. As, as we are rooted in the gospel and grow in our hope, the byproduct is joy, right? Joy is not an end in and of itself, it's the byproduct of a greater end. So today, in our text, we have returned to Romans 15. We've spent a lot of time in Romans 15 over the last month, um, specifically looking at hope. We spent three weeks at the beginning of this chapter kind of, kind of meditating on hope because, because Paul was writing to a community in conflict, not unlike our own community, right? You had, you had Romans and you had Jewish believers. And they had very, very different ways of approaching life, very, very different political convictions, very, very different ideological drives, very, very different ways of approaching the world, very, very different ways of considering who us and them are, right? They both othered, right? They just othered different kinds of people, right? The Jews othered the Gentiles, or all the non-Jews. The Romans othered the barbarians, all the non-Roman, uh, uh, the, the uncivilized, which would include the Jews. And, and, um, and so there's all this taking place, right? So let me just reread you the first four verses of this chapter to remind you. We who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak, right? And we talked about that. That basically means everybody, because we all think we're the strong ones in any fight. And so we're not to please ourselves. Verse 2, let us... Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, right? Don't, don't fight to win, fight to love, right? That's the goal. That's the gospel call. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ, our ultimate example, um, didn't stand on his principles, didn't stand on his rightness, but instead allowed the reproaches that, that were our due to fall on him so that we could get the glory that was his due that we could never earn, right? Verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope, advent hope, a hope that looks back to the coming of Christ, 
to be, to be rooted in, in our security that, that Jesus died for our sin and rose again for our glory. And, and, and looking ahead to the second advent, the second coming, when he will return, right? He came the first time to redeem and he's coming back the second time to restore, right? And so, so Paul is saying that, that if we want to be able to navigate the tricky times, the complex times in which we live, just like they had to in their time, we need to be rooted in hope. And we need to allow that hope to have its genuine components, endurance and encouragement, right? We, we broke all that down and we looked at that, right? Advent hope is the result of endurance and encouragement. Endurance with the discomfort of pain and waiting and encouragement to find joy in the anticipation of the fulfillment of the promises, right? Endurance and encouragement are the result of responding to what, to what has been written beforehand, right? Paul says what was written beforehand was written so that you might have endurance and encouragement so that you could have hope, right? Listen, the promises of the gospel are given to us, not just so that we can believe them and get a good result, but that we can continue to believe them, engage them, and start experiencing the future blessing in our lives now. So we can actually enter into the fulfillment of the gospel in this in-between time while we're waiting for it to be fulfilled. We are confronted every single day with the reality that this world is not what it's supposed to be. Every single day. We're confronted with cruelty and abuses of power and inequality and inexplicable suffering. Every day. But in the midst of this suffering, right, we are to take hold of the promise that God came to redeem and has promised to come back to restore all things, including us. And here's what I want you to catch at this point. The promise is what awakens within us hope. Hope is a response to the promise. Hope isn't something we generate for God. Hope isn't something we choose to have because we need it. Hope is a response to a promise. It always is. We're surrounded by promises in this world, right? If, if, if we win the World Series, there's a promise that I'll be happy. If I get my promotion, there's a promise that I'll be significant. If, 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 if I'm able to uh, lose 20 pounds, there's the promise that people will look at me differently, right? There, there are all these promises that surround us, and, and hope is always a response to the promise, and there's no greater promise than the promise of the gospel. And so it produces no greater hope, right? It, the Advent promise produces within us a transcendent hope. Hope is a response, right? So as we move this week to verse 13, I want to focus on verse 13 this morning. I want us to keep that in mind, right? Take a look down in, in chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope, right? So, so Paul here is continuing to develop this theme of hope, right? He didn't just introduce it and leave it. Like this whole thing is, is about Advent hope. I mean, did you notice the bookends on this verse, right? Paul prays to the God of hope with the end result that you might abound in hope, right? He, he is praying to the God who gives the promises, 
because he's the one. If God didn't give promises, we would have no grounds for hope. If God was not a God who kept his promises, we would have no grounds for hope. All we would have are the deceptive promises of this world giving us deceptive hopes. But we have an eternal hope because we have an eternal God who always keeps his promises. And he is a God of hope because he intends to awaken within us hope. And Paul is praying that, that to the God of hope that we might abound in hope. That we might not just have it, but we would abound in it. That, that it would be something that is not only present in our lives, but growing in our hearts. You don't have enough hope yet. You are not strong enough in your hope yet. You need more hope. This, this idea that it might abound is this idea that it might be springing up in ever increasing experience, right? It's bookended by hope. He prays to the God of hope that we would abound in hope. But how is the hope going to grow? That's what's interesting in the middle of this verse. How is hope going to grow. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. So that you might be filled with all joy and peace in believing the promises of the gospel. This is what I want you to see. Paul is praying that the God of hope, the one who gives hope by making promises he can keep, will then fill us with all joy and peace as we believe those promises. Right? God has made a promise to redeem and restore. We believe that promise. As we believe that promise, it awakens within us the byproduct of joy and the byproduct of peace. As it awakens an abounding and ever-increasing experience of hope. Let me put it this way. The promise that God has, has made to us is like, is like rich and fertile soil for our hearts and for our minds and for our soul. Faith are the roots that go down into that soil. To dig in and to pull the strength out of those promises, right? If we don't have faith in the promise, the promise doesn't feed our souls. And if we're not growing and believing the, the, the gospel, if we're not ever increasing in, in our responsiveness of trust to the God who makes promises, then, then we're going to wither, right? We need roots that go deep into the soil of the promise of the gospel. That's our faith. And, and what comes out of those roots is, is the vine of hope, right? The, the vine that is reaching and stretching and growing toward the fulfillment of the promise, Right? So our roots dig into the promise and hope is what grows out of that like a vine to reach toward the fulfillment of that promise. And joy and peace are the fruit that grow on the vine. They are the byproducts of being rooted in the gospel and growing in hope. Joy and peace are the byproducts of, of being rooted in the first advent of Christ and yearning and growing in our longing for the second advent. Joy. Joy is not an end in and of itself. Joy is, is, is not something we pursue directly. Joy is the byproduct 
of pursuing what is worthy of being pursued. And that is pursuing the love of God revealed to us in the coming of Christ and the goodness of God that is promised to us in the second advent of Christ. That he, will, he has come to redeem and he is coming back to restore. Y'all, we desperately need more joy, don't we? We desperately need more joy, less distraction, less anxiety, less weariness. We need the encouragement of joy to come in and refresh us. To once again give us resilience, the ability to bounce back. We need joy. So how do we grow in our joy? If joy isn't something to be directly pursued, how do we grow in our joy if we desperately need it? All right, let me give you three principles. Let me give you three principles about growing in our joy. To grow our joy, first of all, we need to root our faith in the gospel. Right? To grow our joy, we need to root our faith in the gospel. If you want to grow in your joy, you need to stop chasing joy. And refocus on the incredible promises of the gospel. That's important, y'all. Because if we're spending all of our time focused on the joy we don't have, we're going to be filling ourselves not with faith in the gospel, but in self-pity and in frustration. And we're going to be, we're going to be looking for short-term fixes for a long-term problem. If our joy comes from our hope in, in the second coming, right? The, the second advent when, when Jesus comes again to restore all things. If we're going to have our joy firmly coming as a, as a, as a fruit of that hope, we need, we need to root our faith in the first advent, right? We need to root our... We need to spend less time thinking about our joy and more time thinking about our Savior. We need to spend less time worried about about our weariness and more time coming and feasting on love. We're a therapeutic society, right? We are obsessed with being well-balanced and and happy and, and, and we want to find the root of all the problems and fix them right away. Because if I'm not happy, there's obviously something not right with me and and I need to figure out what it is and fix it. And and here's the problem, y'all. There are things that are wrong that we can't fix. Now, there are some things that we can address. There's no doubt about it. I'm not anti-therapy. Absolutely not. I believe there are, there are deep wounds that, that often um, need to be exposed and explored in grace for them to heal, right? Time does not heal all wounds. We know that. That's a lie. Grace heals all wounds, right? Time doesn't heal wounds that aren't clean, those wounds need to be cleaned out with grace for them to heal. And some of us have gaping wounds in our souls that, that continue to afflict us. And I'm, I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't explore those things. And that we shouldn't, maybe even with, with gospel-centered therapy, dig in and, and, and open those things up, right? And, and figure out how those wounds are, are continuing to shape us and drive us. What I am saying is this. We can't be obsessed with fixing ourselves. Therapy is not the solution to our soul's problems. Therapy is, is an aid, right? 
The solution to our soul's problems isn't us fixing ourselves. It's being, it's being completely focused on what God has done to fix us, right? It is not consumed in, in me adjusting myself. It is not, it's not about me focusing on myself. Listen to me. I, I'm going to be most content when I'm most focused on the love of God. Think about it, y'all. When are the times you've been most happy in this life? They're probably not times when you are most focused on yourself. They were probably times when you were most focused on the experience you were sharing with others. On the shared love that you had with others. The, the shared experience, right? When we are brought out of ourselves in love, we find ourselves in community. And there's no greater community than our relationship with God. We were designed to, to, to find our joy in our relationship with God. And, and the, there's nothing like the gospel that invites us continually back to that experience of love. We need to be continually reminded that we are loved, not for what we do, but because of what he's done. We need to be continually hearing the promise that our hero has paid our debt, that, that our God became our substitute, right? That, that, that his glory was covered in our guilt and shame so that he could die the death we deserve to die. Not so that we can be covered in guilt, but so that we can be delivered from it. Right? He took our place in our judgment and paid our price so we could be set free. He died the death we deserve to die so that we could be raised with him in his resurrection, right? He was covered in our guilt so we could be covered in his glory. That's love. That we have a God who, who, who was not only the righteous judge, but the perfectly right substitute and sacrifice for the judgment. He put himself in our place so that we could take our place with him. We need to be continually coming back to that incredible message to have our faith renewed and our hearts melted and, 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 and just to be renewed with, with that love. There was a mission first coming, right? And that mission was love. That's the rich soil that renews our faith. That's the promise. Not just an, an abstract promise of future blessing, but a promise that is rooted in an action of love, the kind of love that melts our pride, that comforts our fear, that awakens within us a yearning for more, right? That's the rich soil that our, that our hearts and our minds need. The promise of the gospel, believe in him and receive from him every blessing he has to give. So we look back. Right? We look back, not only at the promise, but at the God who took the first step to fulfill that promise. Right? By sending Jesus to live our life, live life we should have lived, and then die the death we deserve to die, so that when he rose again, um, we could be pardoned and, and forgiven. Because he was our substitute in judgment, we can be his partner in blessing. So we look back. Right? But we also look forward. We look back at what God has done to fulfill the promise and we look forward to the full fulfillment of that promise. So this leads naturally to the next point that, that if we're going to grow our joy, we not only look back to have our, our faith strengthened and, and, and our love renewed, we, we, we look forward. 
right? We, we keep Advent hope primary in our lives. That there is no greater future hope than the second coming of Christ. There is nothing you're looking forward to that is better than that. There is nothing that is coming that will give you greater security or greater significance or greater love or, or, or greater joy and pleasure than the second coming of Christ. Everything else is an appetizer for the feast. Everything else is simply a pointer to the greater fulfillment. What we long for at the core of our being is for all things to be set right. Right? So as we look back, we have our faith rooted in the gospel and it awakens within us a hope that looks forward to the fulfillment of those promises. Right? As Paul said, if, if, if God gave us his son, how will he not with his son give us all things? It is the promise in which every other promise is embedded. Right? This is the one promise that will give you not just the one thing promise, but everything else you long for. Every longing, every desire, every yearning points to its fulfillment in this one promise. The God who came to redeem is coming back to restore. And as we anchor ourselves in this hope, as we keep this hope primary, what it does is it protects us from, from the deceptive allure of secondary hopes. Right? We're obsessed in this, right? We keep getting focused on things um, around us instead of the things God is doing in us and for us. And so subtly we start thinking, if, if God will just fix this thing out here, then I'll finally be able to have what I need in here, right? Joy will come when that problem is fixed. Joy will come when that sorrow is removed. Joy will come when, when, when this victory is won, right? We're continually tempted to make secondary hopes primary hopes and think that our joy will come when the secondary hope is fulfilled. Now, I want to remind you, there's nothing wrong with secondary hopes. As long as we know they're secondary. The problem is that we're continually tempted to make secondary hopes primary hopes, right? Your hope and your promotion coming through, your team winning the big game, your candidate winning the election, your, your, you winning the sweepstakes and finally being able to take that vacation, you know, the, the lifting of the social distancing uh, requirements on, on our society and the ability to once again have normal social interactions again, right? These are all good things. But they're not ultimate things. They're all good hopes, but they're temporary, secondary hopes. Which means they can only give you temporary, secondary joy when they're fulfilled. We need to keep our faith rooted in the gospel in order to keep our hope growing in the promise. That we might abound in hope. And y'all, this will equip us to stop running from the sorrow. And instead lean into it. To stop seeing the sorrow and the loneliness and the hurt as the enemy. Because as long as we're running from it, we're reacting to it. We were not designed to run from our sorrow. We were designed to lean into our sorrow and engage our sorrow. Because sorrow is not the enemy of joy. 
Sorrow is not the opposite of joy. Sorrow, in fact, might be the very thing that will grow your joy. To grow your joy, you need to learn to lean into the sorrow. Which means you're going to need to learn to lament your sorrow. There are some incredible promises given to us in the Word of God. God promises to wipe away every tear. God himself has promised that he will wipe away every tear. There's not a single sorrow you've experienced that's gone unnoticed by your God. There's not a single pain that you have felt that has been ignored or overlooked. God will honor every pain, every sorrow, every hurt, every betrayal, everything that was broken that was meant to be whole. Every promise that should have brought you life, but instead brought you pain. Every situation that was meant to bring you into the fullness of life, but instead reminded you how far you are from it. There will come a day when God will wipe away every tear. This is one of the most incredible promises in Scripture. That God will redeem every sorrow. Tim Keller said this. Resurrection means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. Or as Samwise said when he was asking Gandalf at the end of the Lord of the Rings, is everything sad going to come untrue? With the implied answer, yes. He came to redeem and he will come again to restore. And when he restores, he is going to retell the story. And he will meet you in your sorrow in a way that only the God of resurrection can. And every sorrow will be turned to joy. Y'all, I don't know exactly what that looks like because I can't even envision it. What I do know is this. We live in an age of sorrow. We, we want with our prosperity and with our success and with our America, uh, uh, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and, and live the American dream mentality. We, we like to think that this is not the age of brokenness, but it is. We live between the advents. We are not yet in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here, but it is not yet fully realized. The victory has already been won, but it has not, already, not yet been, been fully brought to bear on creation. We live between the promise and the fulfillment. We live in the time when this world is not what it was supposed to be. 
In John 15, Jesus says, my joy I give to you. And then six verses later, he says, the world will hate you as it has hated me. (laughs) Those are not in competition with one another. Our joy is not dependent on this world fulfilling its promises. Our joy is dependent on our God fulfilling his promises. We live in a broken age. We live in a time of sorrow. And it's a fool's errand to run from the sorrow. As if we will only have joy if we can kill the sadness. You know, we need to bring the sadness into the presence of the God who redeems and restores. We need to learn in honesty and integrity to bring the pain to the great physician who meets us in that place of pain, to bring the sorrow, to bring the, the, the loneliness, the isolation, the betrayal, the hurt, to the one who can undo all that has been done and has promised to do so and in the meantime is the only one that can meet us in those places of pain with the comfort that only he can bring. No, joy doesn't come as we kill the sadness. Joy comes as we bring sadness to the God who will undo the sadness. We need to bring our sadness into the presence of our faith and of our hope. And we need to turn to the light of the gospel and allow that light to flood the dark corners of our soul the places we don't even like to look, the places that are dark with doubt, dark with fear, dark with resentment, dark with self-pity, dark with, with, with the pain that this world has given. We need to stop running from our sorrow and instead learn with integrity and honesty to bring it into the presence of the God who sees who knows, who loves, who redeems, and who restores. Y'all, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Right? This world is not the way it's supposed to be. But it will be recreated so that it will be what it could be. It will be what it was intended to be, and that includes you, and that includes me. And that means I have the courage to actually embrace the sorrow, see the sorrow, and meet God in that place of sorrow, knowing he will redeem me in my tears. That's lament. That's lament. Lament is when we bring our sorrow into the presence of the God who comforts, and we are honest, and we are open, and we are vulnerable in the expression of that sorrow and hurt and anger because the world's not what it's supposed to be. And he awakens within us a greater yearning that he will restore it to what it could be and it will be. And it is in the restoring of that hope that we experience joy in the midst of sorrow. As that hope supersedes and and rises above our current circumstances, we find we have a joy that isn't dependent on our circumstances and lifts us above the pain to give us a view of the fulfillment of the promise. 
When we lean into the sorrow in this way, man, our sorrow doesn't kill our joy, it matures it. We lean into our sorrow in this way, our joy deepens and grows more robust as it heightens both the yearning and the encouragement. The pain that things aren't the way they are, the way they're supposed to be, but the yearning that God will set them right. Jesus came that we might have joy. We might have joy abundantly. Let me close this in word of prayer. And uh, we'll share communion together in a moment. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. <clears throat> I thank you for the gift of joy. I thank you that our joy is not dependent on our having all things right, us having it all figured out, us fixing ourselves and not being the complete mess that we know we actually are. Lord, we can come into your presence in all of our brokenness, in, in all of our, our own sin, in all of our own failures, in all of our own shame, and all of our own guilt, knowing that we are fully and completely accepted in Christ because Christ was our substitute. He took our place. And he earned a blessing for us we could never earn for ourselves and we can rest in that gift of grace. And in resting in that gift of grace, we can receive love and in receiving love, it can awaken within us a responding love that allows us to rest, that allows us to stop pretending and performing and fighting and, and, and wrestling and, and we can just rest and it's in resting that we, that we find hope. As our vision clears and we see the incredible scope of the promises given to us, it awakens within us, Lord, a yearning. And out of that yearning comes a joy. Lord, awaken that within us this season. We need it. We always need it. We just know we need it now. Spirit, will you do this within us? Renew. Renew our responding faith. Renew our, our, our yearning and hope. Renew our experience of joy. We pray this in the name of our hero, Jesus. Amen.